I recently put up a post on our Instagram page at BYU Conservatives challenging students to stand up to harmful teachings that professors are teaching at BYU. I listed a couple of examples, including confusing gender like Dallin H. Oaks talked about, or preaching directly against certain doctrines of the church, mostly like those found in the Family Proclamation. I have to say we had a very warm reception, and if you are interested in taking this challenge, go and check out the post to see what that is. We'll be discussing it later in this podcast. One of the responses that we got to this challenge was a student, Nathan Tenney, reaching out to me with an interesting take on what education at BYU should be like. I found it interesting enough that I invited him on the podcast, and he was gracious enough to accept. So the following is our conversation about that topic. I'm Luke Hansen, and this is Red Pill, Blue Blood. Welcome to another episode of Red Pill, Blue Blood. I'm your host, Luke Hansen. Before we get started, if you enjoy this podcast, I ask that you please give this a rating on Apple or Spotify and share with those that you think would find it useful. This podcast is under the umbrella of BYU Conservatives, which I run with Tommy Stevenson. We are on Instagram at BYU Conservatives, and have started a website, byucougarchronicle.org, which you can check out. Thank you. All right, everybody, I'm here with Nathan Tenney. I'll let him introduce himself, but essentially the way that we got in contact was he reached out to us about our post that we made recently about the challenge to BYU students. So before we get into that, Nathan, could you introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. Thanks, Luke, for having me on. My name's Nathan Tenney. I'm a senior in the political science department at BYU, um, dreaming of going to law school. I'd like to be a judge, but I have no interest in being an attorney. Um, and at the moment, it seems impossible to skip the attorney phase. So if anyone has tips for me how that can be done, please reach out. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be on it. I was really interested in that post you made. Um, I'm not a conservative student myself, um, but I, I, I sincerely think of myself as a friend to conservatives on campus. Um, and, and I hope I can be that in this conversation and going forward. You know, I, I really believe that mostly I just think of myself as a pluralist. And so I think BYU should be a place for sincere, genuine, good people arguing in good faith from conservative perspectives, liberal perspectives, um, and everywhere in between and beyond perhaps. So anyway, excited to be here. Yeah. Thanks for being on once again. To set the stage, we put out a post that did fairly well, and it was a challenge to BYU students. It was something that I actually came up with and wrote myself. And the challenge was this that we put out to everybody. I commit to helping remove harmful teachings at BYU. I will do this by challenging every one of my professors or other authority figures over me who teach harmful things at least once the semester. And on the next slide of this post, I gave some examples of these harmful teachings, which would be things like confusing gender, in the words of Dallin H. Oaks, CRT and other critical theories, attacks or teachings uh, antithetical to the family proclamation, or excessive bashing of church leaders, church members, the founding fathers, other important historical figures, etc., especially for being old white dead men in particular. Right, so. Right. You reached out to me, and we had a very um, somewhat brief, very interesting conversation 
on social media and I said, I think this would be a great thing to have more in a public space, like on a podcast. So what was your reaction to this post? Yeah, so so actually I first heard it from my very, very liberal friends on social media who were sharing it. And they were like, I'm taking the challenge, guys. And their point was, you, you used this language about, like, I commit to calling out harmful teachings at BYU. And they were like, I, too, commit to calling out harmful teachings at BYU. But, of course, their view of harmful teachings was sort of opposite of what you guys are viewing as harmful teachings. That's really interesting. I didn't know that's how you found the post. Right. But I think it speaks to, like, we're not arguing about we're the good guys and you're the bad guys. It's We both think that we're the good guys and right. that we need to get more specific about why what you're saying is good and why what we're saying is good. It was it was just sort of a classic because um, there's a lot of political commentators who are suggesting that in a time of increasing polarization, there are ways in which sort of the excesses on the right and the excesses on the left are starting to look very similar to each other. Mm-hmm. So um, like a lot of free speech watchdogs are really, really concerned because there's a lot of legislation that conservative legislatures are sponsoring that free speech watchdogs are concerned will have chilling effects. But then if you look at any, not any, certainly not this, but most elite academic institutions, there's these new social rules that are also having similar chilling effects on free speech. And so the far left in academic institutions primarily and the far right in certain very red state legislatures are both sort of turning on and, and then are starting to almost mirror each other in their language and things. And I... So that's how I came in contact with the post was my liberal friends who were like, we love this, except that we're taking it in the opposite direction. But then they were also sort of um, mocking the post as well. Like, look at look at how crazy these conservatives are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went onto the, the page because I was interested to see, like, you know, I'm always fascinated if I hear about, like, you know, most of my friends are very liberal. And so it was like, there's conservatives and they're out there and they're making a splash and I want to know what they're saying. And I was sort of delighted because when I most of the time when I've found conservative social media uh, presences related to the church or related to BYU, um, I've kind of been disappointed because I, I don't I didn't feel like they were especially good advocates for their cause. I felt like anyway, your page was different. I felt like there was a real openness um, and excitement about discussion, sort of like a good faith effort to try to rather than just bash sort of like we're genuine conservatives and we want to have an honest conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I liked that. And then the thing I liked most about the post was this sense that like, yeah, I think if you guys don't like what your professors are saying or with what other students are saying, I think it, it's just it's sort of like my dream to be sitting in a class where a relatively liberal professor is saying some sort of liberal thing and a student raises their hand and says, I disagree. And and this is the conservative take. And this is why I disagree. I just love that idea. Um, and it's not because you would necessarily agree with that student, but you see your big thing seems to be like free speech is right. what you're always going back to. Right. So it'll sort of always come back to that view of like pluralism, academic freedom and free speech. Right. And so Sometimes I probably will agree with a conservative student. Often I won't. I'm probably a little more liberal. Um, but I think those we need an ideal lab. We need a robust dialogue about all and, – and no topic should be off limits and no question should be off limits. So I think that's sort of the the heart of what academia is, is that any form of academic inquiry is allowed. If we're asking questions about you know what's the best way to structure an economy fairly – um, in ways that 
that sort of match gospel principles? That's a good question. If we want to say what's a good way to structure an economy that doesn't match gospel principles, that's a good question too. Um, if we want to ask, you know, does God love me? Is God there? I think those are some of the most important questions, especially at a religious institution like BYU. And so anyway, I wouldn't want there to be a chilling effect on either side. So what I reached out to you and said was, I love this post insofar as it seems to be encouraging um, that one half of the conversation be better represented. You, like you were saying that essentially we were saying, hey, there's a big chilling effect with conservatives in a lot of their classes. Right. And we're challenging you to to step up and not let that happen. Right. That, Which I love. That's loved. the part you liked. I love that. There's, but then there's a caveat. Right? Yeah, yeah. Do you want to talk about caveat or should I go well, I, on? I, you were the one that was kind of disagree. Obviously, I agree with basically the whole post because I wrote the whole right, thing. Right, <laughs> so right. So what was your problem with it? Yeah, so so it seemed or like of it. it seemed like and the post explicitly didn't say this, but it seemed like there was a subtle implication that perhaps the professors were in the wrong for the things that they might be saying. If, mm-hmm. you know, harmful teachings how are we defining harmful? Is is harmful just like things we disagree with or is harmful things that should not be said and thus need to be opposed? And so I would take a a, a relatively tolerant view of harmful. I think a teaching can be both harmful and should be tolerated and should be welcomed and allowed at BYU. And so I would t- completely defend the professor's right to teach any of those things, bash Columbus and uh, confuse gender, you know, and, mm-hmm. and and all of those issues. And then I would hope that their more conservative colleagues in their departments would respond to them and that their students would respond. And then it can become a discussion, you know, and, and it's only in sort of that tension where a more liberal view is able to be expressed and then a conservative view is sort of rebuts it. It's in the tension of those two ideals that we're able to kind of distill our way to the truth. And so that's what I was nervous about is sort of this sense that not just that these ideas should be pushed back against, but that they shouldn't actually be tolerated at BYU. And that's something I would strongly, strongly disagree with. So I guess respond, is that an accurate accusation? Is your position that certain views should not be tolerated at BYU? If that is your position, to what extent? And then maybe we can debate it. Yeah. So Absolutely. That is my position. Yeah. I think a number of professors at BYU need to be fired forthrightly, frankly, okay, <laughs> to be sure. honest. And it's not – and we tried to do this in our Book of Mormon post as well, another post that I created, and this one, is it's not if they don't support Trump, then we need to fire them. Sure. Or if they don't think the tax rate should be this, a very um, focused thing where what you're teaching is definitely explicitly against the church. Sure. Uh, and sometimes it is, like, explicitly against the church. Like, I had a person contact us just a few days ago, the beginning of the week, saying, hey, my professor just said the reason we don't talk about Heavenly Mother is a bunch of sexist white men are afraid of a powerful woman, implying that the prophets right. are old, sexist, closed-minded white men. Right. Um, big problem. Teacher needs to be fired, in my opinion. Sure, so, sure. But – if it's I mean, like, I imagine if you'd... it's just if you if you categorize it as things I disagree with, I right. want to get rid of. No, not necessarily. I'm I'm completely fine with a wide range of things. It's just in those instances that seem to be getting more and more prevalent at BYU, where they're directly teaching against the church's sure. doctrine, then that's a problem, and that needs to be uh, 
maybe I'll get attacked for this kind of language, but I would say words like stamped out, right. eradicated, not the teachings, yeah. not the professors. <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's not stamp them to death. Yeah, you know, no. The core horror. That was but a long if, time if ago. But if they're going to persist in it, I'm like, sure, fire them. Like, make it clear why you're doing it and give them chances to change. But, like, that, need, that needs to be out of here. And I imagine, I just want to go back to this point about the person who reached out to you. I'm sure you would be fully in support of there being due process, right? Just because yeah. a conservative feels feels like their professor is accusing the prophets of being irrelevant, old, closed-minded white men doesn't mean that that's what the professor was actually doing. And so there should be sort of like a due process. The reason I bring this up is just mm-hmm. that I've often been in classes where I've had, you know, either in student ratings after the fact or or in conversations in the hallway after the classroom, students say things like, I can't believe how... Uh, unorthodox and, and terrible and like uh, fanatically liberal or or antithetical to the gospel that professor was. And I'm like, were we in the same class? Because I didn't hear any of those things. Yeah. You know, I, I heard this person sort of having a sincere and curious exploration of gospel principles. And and you heard this person just attacking the church with with vehemence. Um, so anyway, I imagine you'd, you'd want there to be like real explicit and documented violations. And ideally, the first step would be for students to start speaking up in classes, which is why the post was about that sure. and not about, here's a list of professors right. we need to fire. No, yeah, yeah. thank you. I, mm-hmm. I, I'm glad that we're not making lists yet. That's good. Um, yeah, so I guess, so a respectable position. That was actually my favorite thing about our Instagram conversation mm-hmm. is that I sort of subtly suggested, like, are you saying certain ideas shouldn't be tolerated? And Maybe a lesser debater would have been like, no, of course I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm, I, I'm saying something else that's basically the same, but not that. Yeah. Um, but I just – I really appreciated how like it, the good faith way that you were like, yes, that's our position. And I know it's a bold position, but that's our position. So, so full marks for that. I thought that was, <laughs> that was amazing. I thank you. Um, but I also strongly disagree. I think mm-hmm. I – in fact, I think I have a, a radical enough view – that I don't think there are any teachings where the teachings themselves, the speech itself on the part of the professor, should be grounds for any form of ac- academic discipline. And I don't know if there are exceptions. I mean, I per- here's how I'll couch it. If the professor is purposefully telling uh, demonstrable lies, things that are – there's like empirical evidence. They're like falsifying a, a study or they're like plagiarizing. I don't think plagiarism should be protected academic speech. And I don't think like professors that are teaching things that they know they know are lies and they're they're teaching them anyway. Those things I, I don't think should be protected. But even if they're teaching something that's sort of been empirically disproven, but they're just the holdout and they're like, no, no, I actually think the earth is flat. You know, if, if, if they believe the earth is flat, then I think they should they should be protected in saying that. And if they believe certain things that that um, seem or in fact are against what the gospel is teaching, I think that needs to be protected as well. And this isn't because my view is that BYU shouldn't be a place where we advance God's gospel principles. Mm-hmm. I think that's the heart, the like the treasure of a BYU education, is that the purpose is to help us distill truth, spiritual and secular truth. Um, I, I, I think that's the most important thing. I think we need to safeguard that virtue at BYU. But I think if we fire professors who disagree with gospel principles, I think that will actually hurt our goal of achieving those gospel principles. And so that's kind of where our, that's where our conversation went. Um, so, yeah. yeah. 
there's a number of places I feel like we could go at this, but I th- I think the best place to really shore up your position is mm-hmm. to go to the um, – it's not a mind game. It's a thought experiment sure. that I introduced. Yes. And the thought experiment that I introduced to kind of bring you to your logical conclusions was we go back to the 1930s and instead of becoming chancellor of Germany, Hitler – does not get elected, right. and so instead he goes and takes up a pres- position at BYU, right, in the sociology department or right. where, wherever his uh, tastes are, yeah. and starts teaching the stuff that he was teaching over there to his students, right. I and my question to you was: in this scenario, does that move of hiring Hitler increase or decrease the academic? quality of a BYU education. Right, right. I loved this. I had several friends who were like, Nathan, don't talk about Hitler on a podcast. <laughs> and I know, it's, out I know it's cliche, <laughs> right, but we're not, right. we're not doing Holocaust. We're just right. saying like, person with very bad ideas who has a track record of success, right. promoting them to people right. going over. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, no. I, I'm, I, I think this is a delightful thought experiment. And yeah, my position is, I think, I think Hitler could improve the quality of a BYU education. And I know that's a, a really outrageous statement, but I stand by For it. For your sake, I hope that doesn't get clipped. <laughs> I know. Please, no one clip <laughs> that. On um, TikTok or something. And let me just cage it, right? I think I, – I don't know if there – there's there's basically never been more wicked and uh, condemnation-worthy and, and, and disgusting viewpoints expressed by anyone – Mm-hmm. than those viewpoints expressed by Hitler. They were just uh, terrible. And, of course, I don't agree with them at all. Um, I think they're evil. I think they deserve immediate condemnation from everyone on all sides of every political spectrum ever. Um, but my view is that the best way to de- defeat Hitler's viewpoints, the best way to be persuaded of their untruthfulness is to hear them from the source. So if you're someone who's opposed to Nazism, the very best thing you can do is have a thorough academic exposure to Nazis and the things that they're teaching. So Mein Kampf, we should read because that's an insight into Hitler's uh, perverse worldview. And the only way to truly understand and be able to defeat that perverse worldview is to thoroughly read all the, all the things that he said. And if he were alive, yes, I would want to interview him and I'd want, to, I'd want to put him in front of a classroom so that we could all take very careful note of the things that he's saying so that we would then be in the best position possible to rebut those teachings. So this is sort of a John Stuart Mill. He's the first person I know of in the philosophical canon who, who talks about this point. But he has some quote along the lines of, it's not enough to hear the atheist's arguments from the theist. You have to hear the atheist's argument from the atheist himself in order to be best appraised of whether it's true or not. Um, Because if you just hear views parroted by people who don't really believe them, they're going to be some sort of straw man, weak effort to actually express them. And you're never going to to, um, come face to face with the the strongest arguments for the position, and thus never have the ability to take them down. And so if atheism is true, John Stuart Mill believed the best way to know it was to hear it from an atheist. And if atheism is not true, the best way to, to know that was to hear it from the atheist. And so, so yeah, I think, I think if BYU's goal is to teach us to believe in God, then I think one of the essential ingredients in doing so is to invite atheists onto the faculty 
to invite atheists into our forums to talk on Tuesdays at 11 uh, and, and to express their viewpoints. You know, mm-hmm. bring Richard Dawkins here and let's hear his. I think Richard Dawkins is one of the worst atheists, actually, as far as like. Worst meaning the most militant or like no, he like, is the worst reason. Yeah, I don't like his I don't like his defense of atheism. I think it's just sort of a poor argument. Is yeah. What you, OK. Right. But anyway, um, bring him here because I think we need I need we need to be able to 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 honestly engage with that. So that was sort of my first answer to your question, should we invite Hitler onto the faculty here at BYU in 1930? Oh, I guess I should also say, I think in 1930, he'd already broken German law. And so I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't, we shouldn't welcome criminals onto our faculty just so that we mm-hmm. can get interesting viewpoints. But let's say, let's expunge the, the laws he broke from the record. Imagine yeah. Hitler has a clean record. Then yes, I think just in 1930, hiring him at BYU would not have been a bad idea. And if Hitler, while he's here, does anything beyond teaching his viewpoints. So if there's like targeted harassment of certain students because they don't look Aryan enough, things like that, of course, are not protected at any academic institution. But hate speech itself, I think, needs to be taught so that we can honestly appraise it and then um, be in the best position to rebut it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be Hitler. It could be someone anyone in kind of the eugenics camp. Right. Um, someone is teaching at BYU or another institution, and they're saying how much better society would be if um, people with Down syndrome were gone, crippled right. people were gone, very intellectually diminished people were gotten rid of um, kind of by whatever means necessary. They're teaching in an academic way, though. Right. But then the students go out and act on it and quote that person right. as their inspiration. Are you saying that that professor has now engaged in instigating that activity or because they weren't, they didn't necessarily lead the charge to go and carry out their ideas that you wouldn't hold them accountable for that. So would I, would I agree that a professor should be fired if they teach something like um, certain people with disabilities should be purged from society and then their students go out and purge students, for, purge those people from society? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think unless, so I'm kind of, I would fall in line with sort of the legal framework that America set up for questions of incitement. Mm-hmm. I think they're so, and I, and I'm not an expert. I can't remember what the case is called. It's something with a B, Bramling or something like that is the incitement case. But but I I think it is possible for someone to be liable for incitement, but but only in narrow cases. So if they teach something and then a the month professor later, would have to say, you Billy. You right. should go and kill Johnny tonight, right. and that would make the world a better place. Right. Then the professor is in trouble. But right. if the professor is just showing graphs and statistics and stuff, yes. that makes Billy think the world right. would be a better place without Johnny, and he goes and right. does it, then your professor's I'm, off the hook and you're. I'm generally world. there. There may even also be something about imminence. So if they teach uh, a lecture where they're sort of like suggesting these sort of actions that students could take right away, and then an hour later they do them, there may even be some legal liability there depending on who the judge is and, and the facts of the case, right? So, But again, I would just sort of fall in line with whatever our legal framework is right now on incitement. And in general, no, I don't think a professor would be liable for something like that. But this is, an, this is I think, the next most important point to raise in this, this debate about bringing people onto the faculty who have horrible, untrue, and objectionable viewpoints. Or even in my case, keeping them on the faculty. <laughs> or right, or not firing them, right, yeah. if they're already here. Um, 
so and you, I'm not equating them to Hitler. <laughs> fair, fair, there fair. are already people that I would like to be not on the faculty. Sure, makes sense. Um, so you brought up this great point. Hitler is a really effective advocate, or at least historically was a really effective advocate for some of the worst ideas in history. You mind if I say like specifically what I said to yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. I ahead. said what would seem like a really big insult because <laughs> you were like, like, he's just expressing his views, so it's not going to do damage. And I said, right. I think that six million Jews might disagree with you on that. Right. right. And your response was, well, they didn't have free speech when that was happening. He tamped it all down. And my response was, well, they started with free speech and he convinced enough people that it turned in, Germany turned into what it became. Right. Right. So this is this, I think, is the heart of the question. Right. So. So people are going to say, all right, academic freedom in theory is a great idea. But in application, um, you could have someone arguing some really awful things and then they're successful in pers- in spreading those views. Um, and didn't that happen, you know, in in Germany in the 1930s and 40s? Russia. Russia, so many other places. Right. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so my, my rebuttal is yes. The reason Germany – the reason Hitler was able to come to be so persuasive in Germany was not because of Germany's free speech protections, but because of Germany's free speech restrictions. And I'm not an expert on the history, but I don't think they had perfect free speech protections even before Hitler came to power. And then, of course, he tamped down even further. Right. But that's why I think Hitler in a government position of authority without free speech norms curtailing him is an incredibly dangerous person. And his his speech can't be tolerated if there are not robust norms and laws protecting other speech as well. Then, of course, I'm not in favor of tolerating speech unless we have sort of an open forum where all speech is tolerated. If you're going to selectively sing, single out certain speech to not be tolerated, then I don't think you can justify tolerating any speech because there won't be the necessary guardrails to kind of rebut, right? So so you need all sides of an argument. And if you take out certain sides of the argument, then the other sides of the argument will just have too much power and they'll kind of become overwhelming. And I think that's what happened in Germany. But if BYU hired Adolf Hitler in 1930 and they have a diverse faculty with diverse ideas and robust academic freedom protections and free speech protections, then I think you have Hitler exactly where you want him. You have Hitler in a department of 15 other sociologists or political scientists. He teaches his awful things to his students and in his research papers. And then all 15 colleagues in his department can respond and they can say, whoa, whoa, this is exactly why everything he's saying is incredibly objectionable and why you shouldn't believe it. And then those same students in Hitler's class go to their professor's classes and their professors are able to say, now, Professor Hitler may be t- teaching you X, Y, Z, but this is why that is perverse, a terrible distortion of the restored gospel and and not something you should sign on to. And I think in, a, in an environment like that, you have the best chances possible of restricting Nazism. So you, you could argue, no, or wouldn't you have the best chance of restricting Nazism without Nazism being represented on the faculty? And I just think, you know, Nazism isn't isn't the issue of our day, but Nazism's equivalence, the the sort of evils and perversions of truth that are so popular today are all around us. And if they're not represented on the BYU faculty, they're going to be represented in social media feeds. They're going to be represented on YouTube. They're going to be represented everywhere else that BYU students go. And so believing that we can kind of shelter them while they're here from these ideas, 
I think will never be true. I think they're going to find these ideas. They're going to hear them elsewhere, and they're not going to hear them in the environment necessary to rebut them. Mm -hmm. I do want to bring up a kind of like a, a logical fallacy almost, I would say. Sure. Is yeah, how can you have – we're not going to be favoring any principle at uh, academic institution. It doesn't have to be BYU except for the principle that we shouldn't be favoring any principle. Right. You are dedicated to this principle of free and open discussion. Right. But that's still a principle. Sure. No, I think I – think I, uh, to one extent, I just have to say I'm guilty as charged there. That is my principle, right, mm -hmm. at the end of the day. But it's only my principle to a certain extent. I am totally open to the debate that free speech is outdated and should be done away with. And I'm open to the debate that academic freedom is not what BYU needs. Mm -hmm. so, so I'm tolerant until there's some coercive action taken, right? So – so if BYU wants to condemn its own professors, great, go for it. But if BYU disciplines its professors in some meaningful way beyond just sort of statements in disagreement, that's what I'm against. So I, I'm – and that's why I actually really liked your post because that's what it seems like to me is just you guys saying, hey, we don't like this. You know, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. we, we don't like these ideas. We think they're not true. Awesome. That's great. Um, and, and I think you can I think you can be especially uh, like I think you can be really, really loud and vocal and even a little bit extreme in your denunciations. I would hope that Hitler's faculty members would be relatively extreme in their denunciations of him. But I think firing him would 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 not be right. I just I think it a, a very fundamental question that comes out of this principle that you have is the idea that humans are basically good. And yeah. if I'm, if I may do very bad debating skills and try to explain your own position to you, no, I would say that your reasoning is if people are given all the options equally weighted, equally explained, then they're going to end up making the best decision. And I would say that uh, humans have to be trained in what's right and wrong. We do have an innate sense of good and bad, but we have to pursue it and refine it for us to be able to start making the best decisions possible. Sure. And so a place like the home, a place like church, a place like BYU are the places to do that. Right. And I think that's very well backed up by scripture and the direction that we've received from the prophets about what these kind of places should look like. Because even right. you yourself said, once they get out of BYU, they're going to see all these things. And even while so they're instead here. So instead yeah. of saying, and even while they're here. So I would say instead of, because I don't know, like, you haven't responded to this, but it seems like to me to continue carrying your thing to the logical conclusion, we should start like talking to three-year-olds about this. Like, right. you know, maybe there's a God and here's right. what Richard, uh, Richard Dawkins says, little Susie, but then here's what John Stuart Mill says on this side and here's what Thomas <laughs> right. Aquinas says on this side and right. I'm not going to comment and I'm just going to give you all these things. Like, right. we, we have to be trained. Right. And it kind of, I think it's an old uh, Native American saying, you have two wolves inside of you. Which right. one's going to win? One Whichever feed. one you feed. And so BYU, the home, the church should be in the business of feeding that one because human beings aren't innately good. There's not like societal pressures, like lack of free speech that are stopping us from making good decisions. Right. Um, that's not the case. You actually do need boundaries. You do need walls. You do right. need constraints. And this is a very conservative sure. thing that I'm saying here. So yeah. What would you say to that? Yeah, yeah. So should we 
Should we first? Do you agree with my characterization of your position that it comes from this idea that human beings are basically good, so they just need to be free to express their goodness? Um, that's that's more interesting. Yeah, I mean, do I think humans are basically good? I don't know, but but here's what I will say: regardless of whether humans are good or bad, a free speech environment is the best way to distill the good. So, so I think. Um, so you're kind of doing like a, a founding fathers thing. Like if um, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. Right. The Madison If quote. angels govern men, it wouldn't matter what government they had. I'm botching it, but right. I'm getting the point across. Yeah. So so I I guess I think let's imagine a really scary scenario, which is where you don't have academic freedom or free speech protections. Let's imagine it's not BYU for a second, but it's like ASU does away with all of its academic freedom protections, um, and let's imagine that humans are bad. So humans are bad and they don't have free speech protections. Now I think the things that are going to be enshrined as the official canon uh, and curriculum at ASU are are probably bad things. And so now you've got bad things taught in a situation where you're not even allowed to consider counterarguments to the bad things. Mm-hmm. And, and that I think is the worst scenario, right? So the worst possible. So regardless of whether humans are good or bad, I think an idea lab that sort of doesn't prejudice or bias any parts of the spectrum of uh, the the sort of truth and ideas and good and bad information spectrum is going to be the best situation, whether we're good or bad. But to your point about is there a point at which maybe people are are not yet uh, enlightened enough or sort of mature enough to be able to handle all of those ideas? Yeah, I think I can agree with that to some extent, you know. You would say, though, that by the time you get to BYU, like – the rubber is meeting right. the road, baby. Like you yes. got to If, if you it's not BYU, I don't know when it is because, I mean, we're adults. The pioneers were right? driving carts when they were 14. So yes. like, if you can't handle Hitler yeah. teaching your class, then. Right. I don't think it should be Susie. <laughs> Little three-year-old Susie should mm-hmm. not be in Hitler's class. I agree with you. Um, but I think I would, I would draw, draw a distinction between the home, Sunday school, and BYU. Um, mm-hmm. I, think, I think the home, you know, every, every parent, this is all over our doctrine. Every parent is going to have to make their own call about how and when to introduce agency to their children. And that's going to happen slowly. You're not going to give a two-year-old a lot of autonomy to direct their own life. Um, although maybe we should give them more than we think. But but in general, there's yeah. going to be constraints, right? Um, I think by the time someone has graduated from high school, moved away from home, and is at an accredited four-year university. I think if the breaks and constraints haven't come off by then, I don't know when they would, right? And so so I think BYU has to be one of those places where we're like, hey, you know, this is this is the big leagues. We're no longer going to treat you like you you need to, some coddling. Instead, we're going to expect you to be able to come to your own conclusions about right and wrong. And this reminds me a lot of so I was reviewing BYU's academic freedom uh, policies before I came. Okay. Um, and I I love it, by the way. I think everyone should go read BYU's academic freedom statements. I think they're, they're really beautiful. And I actually think they may be a little inconsistent with the way BYU is approaching academic freedom right now. I think we may need to get back to our, our constitution uh, of, of our academic freedom policies. But it says, so you're talking about, isn't there some risk, you know, like, Aren't there, might there be some students who fall for Hitler's lies? Um, so, is, so this is from the academic freedom policy. 
There is no such thing as risk-free, genuine education. Just as, according to church theology, there is no, there is no risk-free earthly experience. At any religious university, including at BYU, there always will be the possibility of friction between individual and institutional academic freedom. There is no way to eliminate these tensions altogether except by eliminating the claims of one kind of freedom or the other. But to do so would result in a net loss to the church, the university, and the family of universities to which BYU belongs. So, and I, I really love the gospel allusion there that, you know, God sent us all to earth um, with the with the sober knowledge that not all of us would make it back to him, um, or at least the risk that not all of us would make it back to him. And I think that's true of any 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 inoculation campaign. There is going to be a few people who can't handle the vaccine and die, right? Any uh, BYU, any education system is going to be the same way. Exposure to the Idea Lab is the best opportunity we have to figure out what's true. But even the Idea Lab is not going to give us a perfect sense of what's true. And some of us may fall for some of those pernicious lies. And I just think... That's going to be true whether it's at BYU or out in the world. And if we want to call ourselves a university, then I think we have to be willing to accept some of that risk. So my next point would be, what about the tithing money? Yeah. So BYU, heavily, heavily subsidized by tithing money. Right. A fair amount of it is coming from not like super well-off members of the church. You know, tons of people are sacrificing. Right. It has specific uses that it's supposed to be used for. So why in the world would tithing money be going towards, to use our previous example, Hitler's salary or even Richard to Dawkins use... Richard speaking fee. Yeah, or even I would say some of the professors nowadays that are preaching against the prophets, preaching against the family proclamation, right. twisting President Nelson's words on racism, right. um, trying to destroy the founding fathers, all that kind of stuff. Why... Is is that okay? And if so, why? Right, right. Yeah, I think it's okay. You, you're probably not surprised at this point. Um, and the reason I think it's okay is back to that point about how do you defeat Nazism or how do you defeat how do you defeat atheism? Um, assuming atheism is untrue, assuming Nazism is untrue, the best way to figure it out is to hear it from the actual source. And so, if you're taking the the, the widow's mite from a poor developing country in Southeast Asia, and you're subsidizing my BYU education, what's the justification for that? Well, presumably because, especially if like Hitler's on the faculty, presumably because the widow's might in this case is going to defeating Nazism rather than promoting it. And, and it's just, you agree with this if your belief is that the best way to defeat Nazism is to hear it from its source. And if you don't think that's true, then you probably would disagree. But I'm on the side that the only way, the best and only way to really dispense with these bad ideas, at least in our own hearts, is to thoroughly acquaint ourselves with them. And so, yeah, I think the widow's might should be used. I think it's a godly enterprise to expose members of the church, BYU students, ourselves in our own intellectual pursuits, expose us to the, the perverse, wicked teachings of the world. Because if we're not exposed to them, we'll never be able to sort of break out of them and overcome them in our own hearts. So, And I'm not, um, obviously I don't agree with a lot of you on this, but I assume that my viewers, uh, listeners, I should say, uh, are usually on my side. Sure. <laughs> so they're probably coming up with the counter arguments themselves. Fair. So I won't spend too much time uh, coming up with all of them. 
What would you say to the objection that people are coming to BYU? You did read from the academic freedom statement, but the more central mission statement of BYU is like for everything to be taught with the spirit. Right. Brigham Young to Carl G. Mazur, don't even teach the multiplication tables without, without the right. spirit of God directing you. Um a place to learn the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not quoting it directly here, but this right. is the, the gist of the mission statement of BYU. So students are coming in, right. and I'm going to leave the Hitler example and just bring it to what's happening right now. Students right. are coming in, and they're saying, they're saying, BYU, that's the place where the gospel gets taught. That's the place that's not like other universities. That's what BYU has painted itself as. There's tiny right. money going towards this. Everything at BYU is essentially church-approved right. type of stuff. And then they go to a class and they hear from a professor. Ibram X. Kendi and Russell M. Nelson are basically on the same page when it comes to racism. Right. And that the liberation theology view of the gospel is the actual gospel view of the gospel. And now you need to – and this is actual things that have been said. It's on video. Sure. And now that you've been imbued with this knowledge, you need to go home on Thanksgiving break and share your testimony to your family right. that Ibram X. Kendi right. is, we're all is the Lord's yeah. messenger um, to help us rise to the challenge to root out racism from President Russell M. Nelson. Right. What in the, how in the world does – does that work? Right. Yeah. So, so I agree. If our, if our standard is everything needs to be taught with the spirit, I don't think Hitler is going to be able to pass that bar. But I think almost all BYU professors would, including those that believe that Russell M. Nelson and Ibram X. Kendi have the same position. I think there are very few like malicious and wicked BYU professors, even if they're misled. And so... I think it's actually a debate to what extent Russell M. Nelson and Ibram X. Kendi are on the same page. Certainly, they're not on the same th page about all things. But, you know, what's the best way to root out racism? And then we do have to have a debate about structures of power. We do have to have a debate about, um, you know, whether you can be passive in, in, an, in, in a process like that. Like, like, those are all debates, right? And I'm just to show my cards slogans like silence is violence and and the belief that everyone is guilty for past wrongs i think is just totally garbage but i think there's some wisdom in the idea that maybe we don't all bear maybe we're not all guilty for the sins of america's past and for the ways that they continue to affect the future and the present but we may i i do think as christians we're all responsible for the well-being of everyone around us and so if certain people languish under, I, I don't like the term systemic racism, but I really like the term systemic disadvantage. And I think okay. that mm -hmm. term is really apt in describing the condition of a lot of racial minorities in America. Um, I think we need to have a debate about what, you know, again, the overlap between Ibram X. Kendi's view and Russell M. Nelson's view. And honestly, let's just imagine for a second that I'm like a really traditional liberal, and you're a really traditional conservative, um, which I think, you know, I, I think that's probably too reductive in our cases. But let's say I just think, yep, there's no daylight between Ibram X. Kendi and Russell M. Nelson's position. And you're like, no, no, no there's no overlap at all. Um, mm. We're probably both wrong. And if we don't have a debate about what does the gospel, what is the gospel perspective on critical race theory? And what is the gospel perspective on um, anti-racism and, and anti-prejudice and all these questions? 
then I think we're going to miss out on a lot of the truth that we're all supposed to be here to search for. And so, um, you know, and same thing with gender, same thing with the founding fathers. These are complex issues, right? Um, is gender a construct? Is it not? Is an interesting debate. Um, if it is a construct, that doesn't mean it's a construct we should dispense with, right? I mean, <laughs> I think mm-hmm. President Oaks, I don't think, has ruled about whether, has, has like t- told us specifically whether gender is a sociological construct or not. But he has been very clear that it's not one we should just get rid of, right? But there's still a debate to be had about like, what do you do in the sort of complicated question cases where there's people with ambiguous genitalia? I mean, uh, there there are there are so many complicated ways to talk about gender and society and how the gospel intermeshes with it. And so, your your proverbial liberal professor, the like really really liberal and sort of doesn't care what President Oak says, professor. I, I think this case has been over. Overstated. I don't think there are many of them. Maybe there are a few, but I think the process of of finding them, the witch hunt that it would take to find the ones who sincerely uh, support the brethren and the ones who don't. Again, there's 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 almost no way to have due process in that because we don't know what's in their hearts, and so I think we need to be really really charitable. I have some super conservative professors. ITA for one, and I love him. But he's so conservative that I'm regularly like, oh my gosh, Hancock, you know, <laughs> like, are you sure? Um, but I try to practice charitable listening. I try really hard to steel man rather than straw man his arguments and to say, okay, he's saying this thing that just seems so outrageous to me, but, you know, what's the, is there a principle in there, a kernel of truth? And so I think it's too easy to hear someone say things like, go home and evangelize to your family as Thanksgiving about, the, the gospel view on anti-racism. Um, it, it's too reductive to say that that person is just like totally out of line, should be fired, doesn't care about truth, and couldn't be teaching with the spirit. Because I think there are like I was a missionary and you were too, and and I and I I mean everyone who's served a mission knows what it's like to just sort of not know the scriptures very well and not know the doctrines of the church very well and not even know the lessons very well, but just kind of try your best. And the spirit comes and testifies of what you're saying. And so I think oftentimes these professors are not so dissimilar from like a six-week missionary who like maybe has never read the book of Mosiah yet, you know, and, and or doesn't fully understand the great apostasy doctrine, but is doing their best. A lot of these issues are really, really complicated, more complicated than the lessons in Preach My Gospel. And yeah, sometimes these professors may err in the things they're saying. They may go too far. They may overstate cases. They they may ascribe beliefs to the prophets that the prophets don't actually have. Um, but I don't think that means they can't teach with the Spirit. Uh, and I don't think that means they're not sincere and that they don't love the Lord or the church. Um, my Many of my most liberal professors, who are sort of the most unorthodox and sort of curious and creative in their gospel interpretations and understanding are also some of the ones who are the most in love with BYU and the most dedicated to its mission and to the gospel, who are super active in their church communities. Um, and honestly, who at the moment, I mean, we, we haven't talked about this on the podcast portion of this yet, mm-hmm. but you and I have talked a little bit offline about, you know, when I talk to conservatives at BYU, oftentimes I hear them, they sort of express this like, wow, we feel like we're under siege. We don't feel like we're supported. We feel like BYU is transforming into something we don't recognize. When I talk to liberals, they feel the same way. You know, the, these amazing professors who are good friends of mine who feel like 
they're no longer wanted, their contributions are invalid, their testimonies are somehow secondary because they happen to be more liberal. Um, anyway, so I've ramp- I, I can't even remember how we got on this, but, but my point is just that I think we've overstated the case that there are all sorts of professors who are just kind of outrageously inconsistent with the gospel and the things they're teaching. And I think we can be wrong and still have the spirit with us. So, in conclusion. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. I... Not saying this is what you're doing on purpose or something, but it I it seems like a little bit of Mott and Bailey going hunt here to me. Explain, I'm and not so, familiar. Yeah, Mott and Bailey. It might be Mott and Bailey. Is this uh, medieval thing that people would do to defend themselves? They would have the which ones which. I think the Mott is kind of a large area where you can farm, where you can be at, with a little tiny wall around it. Right. But hard to defend. So when people would come, then they'd go into their castle, into their tower. It's a very easy place to defend yourself. Right. And so um, this is used as a kind of a logical fallacy where people will – their actual position is the hard to defend one. But every time it gets attacked, they go back to the very easy to defend position sure, to, sure. to defend it. No, I hear you. Yeah. So I, I think this idea of there's some gray area everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, to pull out one of your examples, there's gray area with uh, gender when it comes to some very rare genetic diseases sure. that that occur. But what you're using that to kind of defend is a professor standing up in class saying that um, men can have pap smears if they have a cervix. Yeah. Uh, which is an actual thing that was said this semester. Somebody sent that to us sure. by a professor. Um that's there's not like a gray area there, <laughs> yeah. you know. If if we're going with the family proclamation uh, and their de- definition of men and women, and Dallin H. Oaks reiterated this again just last general conference, he's next in line to be prophet. Right. Um, that's not that's not really a gray area thing. You could, and I'm sure if you pushed on this professor, she would run over to the gray area. Uh, area and start defending her position from the Bailey yeah, I hear you. right there. But I think we can, and I'm totally open, and I think conservatives do this. See, uh, I'm going to slightly tangent off of this right now, is we had this thing with the LGBTQ mm-hmm. uh, pride event that happened right. just last weekend at Kiwanis Park. Uh, we did a protest type of thing, and a lot of people interacted us with, um, on social media because of that. Yeah. And so often it was... We're trying to be, have love and be accepting, and you're trying to be hateful, right. kind of explaining the two positions right. to each other. That's the difference between us. That's the main dividing this line. This is what the commenters us. are saying on your Instagram page? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. A lot of people in personal messages to us in our private messages, um, people I've personally talked to, yeah. that's kind of how they always set it up. You're this and we're that. Right. Hateful, accepting. And thinking about it, I'm like, I don't. No, I don't think so. I think the big difference between the two of us is that you're not willing to assume that we have good intentions and we are willing to assume that for you. Right. That's the difference between us. So you can't when, – when you have professors saying – expressing these types of viewpoints right. or assuming that the prophets are mean old white men, right. you, they're starting – those things that they're teaching are starting from the intolerant anti-free speech position. Sure. And it's not necessarily their p- 
putting up their points and defending them with the expectation that they're going to get challenged, it's essentially propaganda. Yeah. And a lot of people, the, why, the reason why they're afraid to come out and talk about this is because of their grades. Right. Like right. directly anti-free speech. Sure. They're worried, you know, if I challenge my professor too hard, he's going to, she or he might, you know, there may be punishment for my grade. Makes sense. Um yeah, so I guess to some extent, I think maybe again, you're, you've, you're, I'm guilty <laughs> in that I think it, it's probably true that there are professors who've said things that are just like over a line, that are just like starkly in disagreement with what certain general authorities have said. Um, and that probably happens more often than professors who are like maliciously wanting to destroy the church, right? Yeah. Those are sort of two different yeah. things. Uh, yeah, um, and, I'm, and I'm not saying these professors are bad. Right. Because I'm, I'm with that whole like, um, probably have good intentions. I heard the weirdest thing from a guy, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. He said there was a, a professor who ended up leaving the church who publicly expressed that she did not like Dallin. Um, Elder Bednar's most recent talk Okay, when he gave it, this was a couple years ago, uh, stuff on abortion, feminism, kind of all the main points. Right. And he said, but I was fine with her because she actually strengthened my testimony because there was a few things in the gospel that she knew better than I did. Right. And that's that's still kind of blowing my mind. I'm right. trying to wrap my head around it. My response to that would be, yeah, so wouldn't a professor that actually believed everything in the gospel have been even better for you? We're in a constrained scenario here. You can't teach everything at BYU. You can't have all the professors. Right. You have to be constrained, and, and BYU is the one responsible to select what it is. Like, if you're going to hear Hitler on something— what are we going to – are we going to take out your Book of Mormon class? Are we going to get rid of eternal families? Are sure. we going to get rid of American heritage? Well, I don't think it like, should be a required thing? class. <laughs> like let's not make Hitler a required class. Uh, but, but, but doesn't that go against your own belief that exposure to a lot of well, different things is the no, best way? Just because students will just take what they like then, what they already right. agree with. So That's I think certain things should be required, right? And – but this is just going to come into like a time management budgeting question, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like I don't think you've offended free speech in some great way if you haven't gotten to every available theory because there just isn't time in the day. Mm-hmm. But I think you should do a good job of like getting to as many of them as possible. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, I guess we could debate. Should Hitler be required? <laughs> should he not? <laughs> I, I just think like you say, you're going to have to boot out something really important if you make it required. And um if we had endless time, yes, I think it should be required. So anyway, but to this point about what about when professors say things that are just sort of like flatly uh, different from the church's position? And it's it's from a position that they do not want to debate it. Like if you try to push back on it, right. it's I'm being oppressed, these right. mean people, white men, this right. is what they always right, right, do right. type of – Well, well so, so if a BYU professor retaliates against a student for a viewpoint they share – then, yeah, I, I, I think there should be all sorts of, of discipline, you know. And, and if it's, like, targeted enough and consistent enough, I think even tenured professors' contracts should have loopholes in them such that if – and this is true. This is actually true of BYU and every academic institution. If there's, like, viewpoint discrimination um, on the point of a professor towards a student in grading – um, no, yeah, I think, I think they should be fired. I don't th- – that is antithetical to – you know, what university should be about and the ideal lab and everything. Um, What about the chilling effect, right? And that's harder to police. If a professor just has a really, really strong viewpoint and they sort of express contempt generally for conservatives or for conservative views, yeah, I think students are probably going to 
that's probably going to have a chilling effect. And I don't like that at all. In fact, that makes me deeply like I'm so sad um, if that happens. But that's hard to police. There's just like no way to kind of with a, with a sort of due process approach um, curtail that. Um, so I think to some extent you need a lot of different professors. You need uh, maybe in your one sociology professor's class, it's not a great environment for conservative viewpoints because you know, you're worried about the social pressure of what happens if I express this, right? Now, if there's ever any, like, let's say you're in one of those professor's classes that's just really intolerant, and you say something very conservative, and then you have reasonable grounds to believe they're retaliating in some way, absolutely, that should be rooted out by the university. But the kind of ephemeral social coercion aspect that comes in with chilling, uh, with professors who have like a chilling attitude, that's something that I don't think we can use policy to combat. We just have to use our own voices to combat. And so, um, you know, if, if you don't like what someone's saying or you don't like a professor's approach, but it's not, it doesn't rise to the level of academic discipline, the best thing to do is to write op-eds to the student newspaper, to speak out in your student ratings. And I think to those Students who are courageous enough, and this is why I loved your challenge. Yeah, don't be uh, don't be afraid to to challenge them, right? And then know that the university will have your back if there is evidence of retaliation that results. And social retaliation, if it's just like, oh, he sort of glares at me, you know, that's obviously not something we can the university can do anything about. But if there's academic retaliation... I don't know, they're kind of moving in that way with racism, it seems I like. I know, and, and I don't like that either, right? I, mm-hmm. I, I think the way to root out racism is not to fire people, in most cases, unless, again, it's targeted harassment. So, anyway. Um, but to this point about, what about when professors teach things, not in intolerant ways, so we just had the intolerance conversation, but, like, what if a professor is teaching things that are just that are explicitly against what the church is saying. Um, this is hard, right? And even when it comes to uh, pap smears and gender transitions, um, I think there's a debate to be had about whether the church's position is that no one in America and the world should be able to surgically transition. I don't think that's the church's position. I think the church's position is that church members are discouraged. I think that's what the handbook says, are discouraged from transition. And there can be membership restrictions if they surgically or socially transition. Although it's it's not like a, they don't really flesh it out. It's kind of an ambiguous, in the handbook, it's just sort of, they're discouraged from socially or surgically transitioning. So then that opens up the entire debate about what non-members should be able to do. Um, we don't really have a, an official church position about what non-members should be able to do. Um, and then in the church, so I would be surprised if if a professor is encouraging their students in their class to get a, a surgical gender transition, mm-hmm. right? Um, if you have someone come to you and say, my professor did that, I would love to hear about it. Um, I don't think that's going on. But, but I do can think... Can I briefly clarify my point on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just that the professor was teaching men can be women. Sure. Uh, or women can be men. Right. That's actually what they were saying. Uh, patently false um, in many ways. Right. But particularly in terms unique to BYU in relation to the family proclamation. Right. Patently false. Well, so, but but, but again, this so is So not something... even necessarily bringing up the question of like, should it be legal to or should it not be legal to just in like what the truth is according right. to BYU's sponsoring institution, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
why is that being taught if it's right. directly against the right. sponsoring institution? Yeah, so so the first thing I would say is there does come a point where it's like, well, bad form and inconsistent with the gospel and also like poorly supported in the social science and like why is this incredibly partisan view taking center stage in your uh, sociology curriculum or whatever, right? Um, so there's things that are like, well, I don't like that because it's bad form. And then there's thus they should be disciplined and removed from the university. And that's what I'm always going to not want to see is because I think, again, the best way to figure out what's true about gender as a construct, gender as a biological fact, gender as an eternal spiritual fact, the best way to kind of figure out the truth about each of those is, again, to hear the counterarguments. And so I think it's important to have some people who believe differently than Dallin H. Oaks believes. Um, so I, I do think that some of them should be on the faculty. But in general, I think most professors are not there. You may have a few, but I think generally, like my most liberal professors will talk to me and they'll be like, yeah, I think we're kind of losing the plot on gender right now as a party, as a, as a, like I have many, many very liberal professors who believe this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyway, so we're, so we're, maybe those professors here? need to go to the other professor and say, hey, you're not helping. <laughs> right, right. You're not helping. Yeah. And, 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 we can have a broader conversation about how to diversify the conversation uh, outside of BYU because I do think there's been an incredible chilling effect. There are certain issues that are very hard to take conservative positions on anymore. And so if you if you want to say something that's a little bit conservative about race or you want to say something that's a little bit conservative about gender, there's a good chance at most academic institutions in America you won't get published, right? It's just like that's awful. Mm-hmm. I hate I, – I feel like liberal t- – t- so I'm I'm worried about conservatives turning their back on these historic and, and important traditions of free speech at BYU and other places. I'm even more worried about liberals turning their back on them in other universities because I think nationwide that's the more common phenomenon. I would definitely agree with you there. Yeah. And I, it actually segues my way into something that I've been thinking about asking you yeah. as kind of another argument is that – At what level are we going to have the free speech at? At what level is the free speech going to be the highest principle? And and what I mean by that is what you were actually just saying, and you put it in very good terms, is many other universities, and and this is very well borne out by the actual statistics and facts, don't want to hire Republicans, don't want to hire conservatives, don't want to hire Christians, or like explicitly discriminating against them, especially in fields like law, sociology, psychology. Right, the um, humanities generally. Yeah, humanities in general, a little bit in journalism, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So BYU being very conservative and getting rid of the non-very conservative teachers and stuff actually increases the overall diversity of viewpoints in academia in the United States as a whole. For sure. So. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So at what level? Maybe BYU gets less. But academia as a whole gets more. Sure. So at, at what level are you going to look at it to say this is good or I think, bad? I think if every if every student in America got to go to every university in America, then maybe there's an argument about like, oh, well, just sort of the number of educators at all the institutions just needs to be balanced. Maybe. I, well, but you're not going to stay in the university. So like people are going to go to college and then they're going to leave it and go into the workforce. Right. So the workforce is going to have – people with a higher diversity of viewpoints if BYU strengthens its, we're only going to have professors that are 
teaching the actual words of the prophets. And, and I'm not going to use the word conservative because the church doesn't use that word. I used it before, probably a little um, non-specifically. Sure. But just but at least um, the gospel the the gospel yeah, viewpoint. The gospel viewpoint. We're going to strengthen that, and that's going to involve monitoring what professors are teaching a little bit more, possibly firing the very insurgent or stubborn ones. Um, and maybe that will de-diversify BYU, but it's actually going to increase the diversity in the general population. Yeah, interesting. Um, so my and I'm reading, not saying that's why BYU should do it. Sure, but that I'm is an interesting argument. I'm just devil's advocate for yes. your position. Right. Would yeah, that no. actually help overall? Because BYU is not the world. I know they say the world's our campus, but it's not true. <laughs> right. It's just here in Provo. Yeah. yeah. No, I think, I think my reading of the Doctrine and Covenants is that the goal is not to not necessarily to just have a diverse church, but the or a church that generally has all truth represented in it, but for each individual disciple scholar to pursue the truth, right? And so, like, I don't know if it's enough to just have, like, here we have our our conservative <laughs> bots and here we have our liberal bots, but at least they're all equal in number. I think what we need is for each bot, <laughs> for each student um, to have a liberal and a conservative education. And so it is discouraging to me that other institutions are doing away with their conservative faculty members. They're not hiring them. That That's one of the things I'm most concerned about in America. I think uh, I don't know that we can continue as a functioning democracy very long if academic institutions continue that, that approach. I don't think the solution is for BYU to join them in those tactics. And it's kind of like gerrymandering, if to use like a, a reductive political example. Um, if, if liberals are just gerrymandering like crazy all of their congressional districts so that liberals are way overrepresented in Congress, conservatives understandably are going to be incentivized to do the same thing. Um, but the solution is not the solution to gerrymandering shouldn't probably be more gerrymandering. The solution to gerrymandering should be less gerrymandering. And so while I agree that, that you if you're just playing hardball politics in Congress, then, yeah, you probably need to answer gerrymandering with gerrymandering. But I would way prefer for the courts or for Congress itself, it could totally do this if it had the political will to step in and just say, hey, no gerrymandering at all. We're just going to have every person's vote represented equally. And and so that's, I think, on, a, on just sort of like a, let's talk about the ideals. The right way for BYU to resist the, the very negative uh, tides in America is not to join them itself, but to be the example of like, whoa, look, where are the most balanced, viewpoint neutral, thriving academic institutions? They're the conservative ones. Isn't that weird? The, the, the conservative, quote unquote, conservative schools are the ones doing the best job of treating, of tolerating all viewpoints and, and treating all uh, conservative or liberal faculty fairly. Then I think, I think ultimately that's the best argument against the, the approach that liberal academic institutions are taking. So I think if, if conservatives just join them, then everybody's morally bankrupt. And we, and we get a situation like we have right now in America where most people are furious with Congress. Congress has like an 11 percent approval rating. Mm -hmm. The two-party system, something like two-thirds of Americans would, would like 
to not have an exclusively two-party system. They're resoundingly fed up with both parties. And and I think you'll just get more of that, right? If you have conservative institutions that are just sort of totally discriminating against who they hire based on viewpoint, and you have liberal institutions doing the same thing, then I think you, that's just an untenable system going forward. And I think eventually people will be fed up with both sides, right? And it, and it can't sustain itself very long. But if conservatives are the ones doing it right and liberals aren't, give it a decade and people will turn on those liberal institutions. They'll realize tolerance is no longer with Democrats. Tolerance is no longer with liberal institutions. Tolerance is actually with conservative institutions. And I think that's that if I were counseling BYU, that would be the counsel I'd give them Mm -hmm. to win the long game. I I totally agree with you on the long game stuff and the not necessarily fighting fire with fire, uh, which is uh, Ibram X. Kendi idea in terms of racism is the only answer to present uh, past discrimination is present discrimination. The only answer to present discrimination is future discrimination. I think that's a terrible idea. Uh, However, and I'm going to bring in the the American founding here, as long as you're not um, going against your core principles, you do need to play what some people might deem as dirty sometimes. And I've been surprised with this on our page sometimes is that we've put forward a thing. Uh, One in particular was a rebuttal to Julie Hanks talking about abortion and trying to kind of ignore gospel aspects that are inconvenient for her and then make some, frankly, kind of silly arguments in support of it. So we put out this thing as her um, views on abortion debunked. And we went through each one. We explained why they were wrong. And a couple of people commented and were like, I totally agree with you, but I don't like this tactic. It feels like you're attacking her. And I would explain to them, well, she's a very popular figure and has a large following and influences a lot of people. So we're we're attacking her ideas. Not her, yeah. Yeah, we're not attacking her. We're attacking her ideas. But we're using her because she's a figurehead for this kind of thinking. Um, and then they're like, well, no, Christ said no contention. Like, this right. is a no-go zone. I'm like, title of liberty. Like, <laughs> what are we missing here? Right, right, right. And so, like, America is the most free speech place ever in the history of the world. But the way that it came about is a violent revolution. Sure. Not a not a war crimes revolution or something like the Russian Revolution or the Reign of Terror in um, revolutionary France, but a violent revolution where people really stood up for themselves that overthrew a, probably the second most liberal society at the Great time, Britain, yeah, no, at the time and in the yeah. history of the world. And that's how we got to where we are right now. So right. I think um, getting a little dirty sometimes, as long as you're not violating your core principles, right. people need to be a little less nervous about that. Well, I agree. So to take the Julie Hanks example, though, because I really like that, let's say, and I haven't read what she wrote, mm-hmm. so I don't know, but let's just sort of assume that she's kind of cherry picking her arguments and using and not really arguing in good faith. She's she's omitting things that don't support her and only prioritizing those things that do and kind of giving a a, a, a bad faith argument for why abortion is fine in a gospel view. I think it's fine to resist quite forcefully. Right. And so if anyone's like, don't forcefully resist, you should just sort of gently resist. You know, you just, no, we we disagree. It's better <laughs> you know? to be a um, really good loser than a somewhat mean winner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But but I don't think there's anything wrong with forcefully resisting. 
What I do think would be bad is if you then responded in bad faith. And so then when you're saying, no, 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 abortion, this is the actual church's position on abortion. You similarly cherry pick. You similarly don't, you only find the things that support your argument and not the things that don't. And and you do the, the exact same thing. Then I think that's where our dialogue just just shuts down. It's when both sides decide we're not even good faith anymore in the way we're discussing this, right? So should we kick professors out that aren't going to be good faith about it then? I don't think we should kick them out, right? I think the the solution is to have their colleagues rebut them, right? But I also don't know that there are very many. Well, okay. You you just said it wasn't going to be productive if you're not going to be good faith about it. Well, right. So, But I think there's a difference. And, and, I, and I have to introduce this idea of constraint once again. Right. Is that we're not just kicking them out, but we're going to remove the ones that are teaching very bad things because we're going to be replacing them and sending the tithing money and spending the time on the ones that are going to do better. So, so I think that there are some things you should use threat of coercion. I mean, that. There's a lot of libertarianism within conservatism. So so mm-hmm. maybe I'm talking to your libertarians especially, but everybody, right? I think we should be really, really careful what we use threat of force and threat of coercion for. Um, I think there are ways to respond to speech you don't like. So again, maybe Julie Hanks is arguing in bad faith. Um, and if we were to do the same, it would be unproductive. Just because it's unproductive doesn't mean Julie Hanks should be coerced to do something else or that if you guys responded in bad faith, you should be coerced to do something else. But there are, there are ways short of coercion to resist. And so if there are professors on campus at BYU teaching things in bad faith, I don't think that on its face should be grounds for using coercion to get their speech back in line, right? Don't discipline them. Don't fire them. But you can resist in other ways. You can resist through uh, thoughtful rebuttals. You can resist through letters to the student paper. You can resist through official complaints. Um, And most of the time, you just talk to them in their office. And you, oftentimes, people who are in a bad faith mode of debating, it's because they feel attacked. So if you can go to them and prove that you're not attacking them and just say, hey, I'm worried that you're omitting certain things and you're not. This isn't a fair discussion. I'd be surprised if there are very many professors who wouldn't be receptive to that. And and that's definitely possible. And I've specifically just been pushing back on stuff where I disagree with you. Sure. I think we agree on a ton of different spots uh, on on stuff. But definitely I'm way more of the opinion of like, no, BYU is in the business of being an emissary for the church. It's... um, here to train up the youth. It's here to responsibly spend tithing money. It's here to actually. I have I have one more a kind of a thought experiment and not necessarily a thought experiment that I wanted to bring up right. that I just remembered um, with this idea of just having all these viewpoints being expressed to everybody and that being a good idea to train them up in the way. Let's say you have a first second grader about the idea that addition is being introduced. And so you have your normal, nice, you know, Mrs. Wilson, whoever it is, young, nice to the kids teacher, teaching two plus two equals four. Nice. Then you have O'Brien from 1984 coming in and teaching two plus two equals five if the party says it equals five, but it could equal four. And 1984 is very interesting. He he talks about, oh, Wilson, you don't understand metaphysics and all these things. It uses these... uh, arguments to convince him of that. Right. 
uh, you might say, okay, that that would be good because the kids are going to come out of there being very firmly convinced that two plus two equals four. Maybe O'Brien will get a couple, but they're going to come out of that class not only knowing that it equals four and how to add them together, but being very convinced in that fact. Nobody's going to change their mind after that. Right. But we spent so much time doing that and going back and forth that they don't get to division that year. It has to wait till the next year and somebody else is going to come to argue why division doesn't work. And then when they're trying to get to algebra, somebody's going to do that. And by the time they get to high school, they've only gotten to pre-algebra and we've lost a couple of them along the way. Sure. And so if any of them want to become engineers, if they want to build our bridges, if they want to build our buildings if they want to refine our oil. Right. They're going to have to be at school learning these back and forths between all these math concepts until their 30s before they even know enough stuff to go out to into the engineer. world and be productive. Right. right. So shouldn't we preference truth over that because um, truth is the only thing that's going to end up being productive in the future? Right. Well, so the first thing, truth is only as strong as you like thoroughly understand it. And so I do think there's value in the back and forth. I think the first constraint, so if you're just worried that we're going to be debating pointless and meaningless and silly arguments to ad nauseum because... I, I would say that our men, women, one of those arguments, <laughs> but you seem to be in favor of that being expressed at BYU. Yeah. So I think the first um, like vetting point, the first filter for what should be taught is what beliefs do really, really smart PhD holding academics actually hold. And so I don't think you're going to get very many PhD holding academics who believe that two plus two is five when the party says it is, right? Um, and so, but in 1984, it was the academics that got them to that point. Right. Again, and I, I'd counter with based, the Germany example, which is well, that that's because the, they 19, didn't have speech protections. 1984 was mostly based off of Russia. Right. Um, it, it's basically a... Uh, like Lenin, right. Leninism, and then the one party who Goldstein state is that essentially, Lenin, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Big Brother is Stalin, right? Uh, and it, that comes from the intellectuals. And like Marx was only an intellectual. I mean, the right. man like would hardly even wash himself. He hated doing labor so much. Right. So like, I'd it, it almost becomes like elitist at that point. But like but, we're gonna trust. But Lenin's one party state and Marx himself. I mean, Marx has a lot of interesting ideas. The worst thing about Marx is the fact that he has no respect for free speech or classical liberalism, right? And so, and so I think he's. But I think he'd it'd be fine to have Marx on our faculty as long as the rules of the game are Marx can't shut everybody else up and no one can shut Marx up, right? And so again, but if Marx convinces a lot of people then his ideas are going to be enacted. Right, but I don't think Marx is going to be able to convince enough people of those really extreme... Like, he'll probably be able to convince people of the good stuff about Marxism, right? I'm convinced that labor deserves respect, that we should, you know, that there need to be some constraints. A a pure free market is not a good idea. I'm convinced of that. There are really smart people who aren't convinced of that, right? But, But I don't think Marx is going to be able to convince people of all of the things he believes, specifically that we should just auction away all freedom in the name of equality, I don't think he'll be able to convince a large enough group of people of those most extreme views if there is a general, the, the like rules of the game are robust classical liberal debate and free speech, right? I, I think the only way Marx gets to sort of run away with his ideas and get entire countries on board is if there isn't anyone to rebut Marx because they've been suppressed. And that's why if you're worried about that, the best way to avoid it is to protect free speech at the end of the day. So so 
Anyway, I don't think we're going to spend forever on the most frivolous ideas because very few frivolous ideas are going to make it past the the filter of what's kind of mainstream in society, right? And so mm-hmm. we ha- we'll have new ideas. We'll have new ways of looking at uh, gender and and race and issues like that that we didn't think of before. But just because they're new doesn't make them frivolous, right? And and it's really, really easy to say, you know, but boys can't be girls and girls can't be boys, right? But but we do have to get into questions of definitions, right? I mean, I don't think – I think there are very few – there are some, unfortunately. There are some people who are like, yeah, biological sex is meaningless and should be totally divorced from questions of identity. But th- there are some people who think that. And I'll just say right now, I think that is frivolous and silly. Um well, that's also being taught at BYU. And I know. <laughs> I, <laughs> and I have evidence from that this semester. I would. But again, one professor teaching that, maybe two, right? And, but and like teaching a required course for an entire major type of teaching it. Right. But there are going to be like if the original complaint is we're just going to be spending so much time on frivolous ideas that we'll never be able to get to really good ones. I think as a general rule, that won't be true. I think every generation is going to have one or two kind of two plus two is five moments, right? That they have to – where all of the, the elites and academics have to sort of say, fine, we will once again prove why two plus two is not five, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, no one would talk – the scientists of today would never take flat earth theory seriously unless there were a lot of people talking about it. And thankfully, even right now, there aren't, right? But – But you're always going to have a few sort of flat earth theory equivalent ideas that sort of percolate into the mainstream. Every generation is going to have one or two they have to deal with. But they're not going to have a hundred. And because they don't have a hundred, you're not going to sort of slow down the process so much that you're never able to get to the good stuff. So I don't think BYU – maybe there are some two plus two equals five things going on at BYU. A few. I don't think there's enough of it that we really need to take action or worry. Mm -hmm. I think we're – Probably yeah, way over time. We're, we're, we're not necessarily over time because we didn't set a time. I do have a couple other things going through my mind, but I think I'll just leave them. I'll just say one of them. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would say if we if we look towards Scripture, and I'm going to have to be careful that this is interpreted properly, we can see the principle of free speech not necessarily being upheld in the way you're describing it. Yeah, because you'll have people basically like all the Antichrist in the Book of Mormon get killed by like divine providence because they're poisoning people's minds in a very it seems like fairly free speech society that the Nephites had at the time. Um, It even says uh, I forget which Antichrist figure it was, but it said that he went to this one city and um, they just kind of ignored him and he didn't have too much success there. So he went to somewhere else. But those people were smarter than the other people. And they tie him up. And they tie him yeah, up. Yeah, and they bring him towards the other guy. Yeah, yeah Korahor. Yeah. And um, then Alma challenges him and he ends up getting struck by the hand of the Lord and right. he dies. Um, so is the Book of Mormon just kind of wrong on its political commentary or – Well, so, so this, may, this may actually illustrate ways in which I'm – I'm probably to the left of a lot of your listeners, Mm -hmm. even on gospel issues, which is just that I see Alma as both a prophet and a sort of evolving rough stone rolling, right? He's someone who's who's figuring out the best ways to Mm -hmm. fulfill his prophetic mantle as time goes. um, In terms of the these people are smarter than these people, this is Moroni's commentary. Sure. uh, Or should I say Mormon? 
It's Mormon's commentary. Is it Mormon or is it Alma? Do we know for sure? Well, it's in the narrative. It's not like a direct quote from somebody. So, but we don't yet. But, but we don't always know where Mormon it's Mormon and where it, it's Alma, right? Yeah. Although Alma probably wouldn't be writing about himself in the third person. Well, so but, whoever it was that and sure. Mormon agreed. With and maybe it, it was Helaman, who his son, who takes over and writes a lot let's of Alma's just stuff. It, let's just say it was Mormon because he wouldn't have put it in there if he didn't agree with it. Well, and Mormon is very knowledgeable at how societies fall apart. Sure. The guy knows his stuff from personal experience and from history and from his strong but spiritual here's, here's strength. Here's what I think the – here's my view of the Korahorth story, right? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, they the, – the Book of Mormon people talk in like the ch- chapters leading up to Alma 30 where Korahor is about how they're like – freedom of religion loving, freedom of speech loving, about sort of the the general freedom principles that their societies have embraced. And then Korahor, I think, is an example of them failing to live up to those, right? Because what do they do when this guy's teaching things that are inconsistent with their the sort of enshrined religion of their culture? They tie him up and they deliver him before the chief judge and then he's struck dumb, right? And then Mormon also gets it wrong? So, no, no, no. What does Mormon do? And what does Alma do? You get a few chapters later, we have almost the exact same story with Zeezrom. And I think the Korahor story has to be understood in light of the Zeezrom story, where you have the same character, Alma, encountering almost the same figure as far as like the teachings are very, very – there's not a lot of light between what Zeezrom's teaching and what Korahor's teaching. And Alma treats Zeezrom entirely differently, right? Alma – has met Amulek at this point. You know, there's there are, there are ways in which I think he's grown as a person. And so when he's interacting with Zeezrom, he interacts with Zeezrom with so much grace and charity and mercy. And what happens? It's the opposite ending of the story from Korahor, right? Korahor is not treated with mercy, with redemption. Korahor is, is sort of Im- immediately the coercive power of the state is brought to bear and he ends up trampled underfoot. I think we're meant to read that story as a tragedy and potentially as a failure. And then Zeezrom's story is put in there by Alma or Mormon or both as the, the example of, of what's better, what, what the better approach is, right? Um, how does Alma interact with Zeezrom? He interacts with him with mercy and charity and love. And what's the result? Zeezrom repents. He comes back to the fold. He becomes one of their very best missionaries going forward. And I – the only way for me to read the Korahor story in light of the Zeezrom story is as a growth narrative where the Nephites don't get it perfectly right the first time. They get it better the second time. And that perhaps Korahor could have joined them in their missions to um, the Amalekites and all of the other people they taught if it, it had been handled differently. So anyway, that's my that's my reading of Korahor. <laughs> and, and that's probably different. Like, like that may not be um, – the most traditional reading of it, but that's the only way I know how to interpret the text. I think that I, I'm totally on board with the way that Korhor was treated. Okay. And I don't see how you could read it without um, coming to the termination that the Lord was totally on board for all these actions. Because you said the course of power of the state. That's not true. Uh, that's not why he was trampled. He was trampled because the Lord struck him. And he was – the Lord struck him because he was um, not being directed by but because he responded to the request of his faithful – nope, I'm going to revise that. He inspired his servant Alma to make the promise. Right. If it wasn't an inspired promise, it wouldn't have come through. So Alma's not acting in an uninformed or uncharitable way here. Korahor and Zeezrom are just two different people. 
And Korhor is not intellectually honest. He's not going to be persuaded. His ideas are going to be very bad out there in the society, and he knows it deep down inside. Sure. Um, and, and this was another Antichrist that kind of said, I totally believed what I was saying, but at a deeper level, I knew it was false. Sure. Um, we have that in, in the previous Antichrist in Jacob, I believe. Um, so Korahor is in that camp. So he's not going to change. He He's in sin. He's intentionally in sin. And it's going to damage other people. And so he struck down so that that damage doesn't happen to other people. And Alma kind of – Alma, the people, and the Lord are kind of in a co-partnership of making that demise come to pass for the benefit of everybody else. And the Lord's the one that renders final judgment on people. So definitely we shouldn't you know, be lynching these type of people and stuff. Right. But he's not opposed to this idea of we need to snub out these very harmful voices. But sometimes we'll be inspired that they can be redeemed. And then we get a Zeezrom thing going on there. I think it's a very traditional reading. I don't know that it's the only reading, right? And so, like, I think there are ways to read it so that there's some daylight between what the Lord would have done and what Alma did. Um, and I think there's ample uh, support for that. In uh, the Bible has so many examples of Peter doesn't live up to everything he's called to live up to. Moses certainly doesn't live up to everything he's called to live up to. I don't think there's any reason why we can't also give Alma the same grace that he may not have lived up to everything that he was called to live up to, right? So that so maybe maybe um, he could have handled the Korahor situation not perfectly, not flawlessly, right? And so, but you're right. My view is just like, what I like about this story is that I think it's ambiguous enough for both possibilities to be found in the scriptures. Um, it certainly doesn't say... <laughs> And I, Alma, repented of my experience with Korahor, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and it, but it also doesn't, doesn't prove 100% that Alma was doing exactly what God wanted him to do in those chapters. I think it's, I think it's fully possible that Alma could have done some things wrong. And I think, I think Nephi is another example. I mean, what does he give us in 2 Nephi 4? He gives us this long lamentation about like, I was prideful. I was wicked. I was, I was like, mm-hmm. I was, oh, wretched man that I am. You know, I was wretched, right? Um, and I think oftentimes we're tempted to read that and just be like, oh, ha ha, Nephi, you weren't actually wretched. But like, no, I mean, I think I think there are ways in which he was a person like all of us. You know, that there are probably times he lost his temper with Laman and Lemuel before he should have. You know, so so I think I'm perfectly comfortable and I know not everyone is. I'm perfectly comfortable reading stories in the Book of Mormon through a lens of like, okay, these prophets didn't do everything perfectly all the time. And I, I think that's I think that's fully in line with the gospel. And part of the reason why I'm so nervous about people who are like, no, no, anyone who's teaching against the truthfulness of the gospel should be removed from BYU or should be silenced is because I think some things are a little untraditional about the gospel, but I think the best way to come to the truth of what the scriptures say is to not have a dogmatic reading, but to have an open reading, right? And so, anyway, your view of Korahor shouldn't be suppressed, neither should mine. Uh, okay. <laughs> but I'll disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Not necessarily on the Korahor thing, but just like what we should have, which we've been discussing this whole time. Yeah. Thank you very much, Nathan. Thanks. This has been a very interesting conversation, as I thought it would be, which is why I invited you on here. <laughs> Thanks. No, it was so fun. Yeah, I think it was. And uh, really the best thing that we kind of both agree on that our more liberal friends might need to take a lesson from is just having – like we disagree on Hitler, 
Like, not many people disagree on Hitler politely. <laughs> right, right. I agree. There was kind of a world war over <laughs> right, our disagreements right. on Hitler. So just being able to, to do that, I think, is important and, and a very key thing that we agree on yep. going forward. No, I, I appreciate it so much. And like I say, you know, I, I, I'm a friend of conservatives. I think, I think your position, conservative faculty, conservative students, that position needs to be defended. It needs to be valued more than we are at the moment, perhaps. All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you, Nathan. And that's it. I'm Luke Hansen. This is Red Pill, Blue Blood. <laughs>